It's the Victorian Variety Show. The advantages to be derived from a collection of objects of natural history are too apparent to require any illustration and their beauty and variety of their forms have, in a preserved state, ever attracted the admiration of mankind as being next in point of interest to the living animals. Although good drawings and engravings will give us a perfect knowledge of the general appearance of animals, still, they are deficient in many particulars. For by them, we cannot be made acquainted with the texture of the skin, nor the structure of the hair or feathers. The naturalist, on all occasions, prefers a reference to the stuffed animal to that of the pictorial representation, as by this means he is enabled to trace, compare, and decide on the creature in its several characters and relations. This is the Victorian Variety Show podcast, where I talk about a wide variety of topics that you often don't hear about when you see representations of the Victorian era in an academic setting or in the media, mainly because I've always found them interesting. And the longer I do this podcast, the more I realize that others also find them interesting, which is great because I want my listeners to get as much from this podcast as I do but also because, as I do research for each episode and put my scripts together, I find that a lot of the trends and practices that are often glossed over in traditional depictions of the Victorian era warrant a closer look because they're related in a way that's somewhat eerie at times, which I think can help us make more sense not only of this particular era, but can also help us develop a more comprehensive view of history in general. My name is Marissa, and the quote I just read is taken from the introduction of the Taxidermist Manual, or The Art of Collecting, Preparing, and Preserving Objects of Natural History, designed for the use of travelers, conservators, cons ugh, I'm sorry, conservators of museums and private collections, by Thomas Brown, which, according to Wikipedia, looks like it might originally have been published in 1833, but I found several later editions of it on the Internet Archive. The version I looked at, and will post a link to in the show notes, along with the other sources I looked at in putting this episode together, is the 28th edition, which was published in 1843. But I also saw links to an 1853 edition, an 1876 edition, an 1885 edition, and so on. I don't know whether anything changed from edition to edition, or if they just kept publishing new editions to keep up with demand, which, if anything, emphasizes to me how popular taxidermy became during the Victorian era. This is a topic I've wanted to look into for some time even though I'll admit I have some issues with it. I'm okay with what's often referred to as quote-unquote ethical taxidermy, in which the animals that are used weren't killed for sport, 
so if you happen to find a bird that looks like it died of natural causes while you're out walking your dog or something like that and want to try your hand taxidermy i say have at it but i am vehemently opposed to people killing animals for sport and then having them stuffed as trophies i'm generally not a fan of shaming people online but every once in a while on Twitter, I'll see a photo of someone who traveled to maybe Africa or maybe somewhere in Asia who's proudly posing next to a giraffe or a lion or some other animal that they killed on their hunting trip over there. And it makes me sick. So in that case, I'm really glad thousands of people are leaving insulting comments. I understand that killing animals for sport is frowned upon more now than it was during the Victorian era. But that doesn't mean we should give people who hunted for pleasure from that time a pass. Still, as difficult as this issue may be for some of us, I do think it's important to look at why people during that time were fascinated by taxidermy and what it meant to them. So, what is taxidermy? In a blog post called, interestingly enough, What is Taxidermy?, Steve Wright defines it as, quote, the art of taking an animal's treated skin and stretching it over an artificial form such as a mannequin, then carefully modeling its features in a lifelike attitude, end quote. Wright explains that the term is derived from two Greek words, taxis for arrangement and derma for skin. As was the case with topics I've discussed in previous episodes of this show, such as tattooing, taxidermy existed before the Victorian era. But according to an article on the taxidermy hobbyist site called Victorian Taxidermy, early taxidermy was, quote, a rather crude affair, end quote, used primarily by scientists, explorers, and hunters to preserve specimens. And early taxidermists were, more or less, upholsterers who stuffed tanned animal hides with pretty much whatever materials were lying around, including cotton, rags, or sawdust. Glass eyes and other touches weren't being used yet. And body parts that couldn't be tanned were left, quote-unquote, as is. So a lot of this early taxidermy tended to be shapeless, decayed over time, and was not that lifelike. As a result, taxidermy generally wasn't held in high regard. By the mid-19th century, however, attitudes toward taxidermy began to change. Much of this shift can be credited to one event in particular, the Great Exhibition of 1851 at London's Crystal Palace. This exhibition, held over a five-month period from May to October, was, more or less, a quote-unquote World's Fair that drew an estimated six million visitors and featured tens of thousands of exhibits from around the world. Although, as Ben Johnson states in the Great Exhibition 1851, over half of the exhibits came from either Britain or some part of the British Empire. The exhibits featured the many innovations that were being created during this time, including machines, textiles, furniture, housewares, to name just a few. But rather than just laying their wares out on tables or racks, 
a lot of these exhibitors created elaborate scenes in which taxidermied animals were used as part of the backdrop. For example, as Alice Wood tells us in The Curious Creatures of Victorian Taxidermy, the organizers of one of the Indian displays needed an elephant on which to place a howdah, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, which was the platform that people used to ride in on the back of an elephant when they went game hunting. If you've seen the HBO series Succession, there's a shot of a few kids riding on the back of an elephant during the opening credits. I don't think they were going game hunting. It looks more to me like they're at some circus in the 1980s, or maybe it's supposed to be some ridiculously expensive birthday party for young Kendall or Shiv. Who knows? Theirs isn't too fancy. It looks like a metal seat, whereas the ones in the illustrations that I looked at from the 1851 exhibit had canopies and ornamentation. But I think the end result is the same. It was where the so-called important people rode. Wood explains that many of these exhibitors weren't going for accuracy. The elephant used for the Howda exhibit hadn't been shipped over from India just for this occasion, but rather was quote-unquote borrowed from a local museum in which it had been on display for over 20 years, prior to which the animal lived not in India, but in South Africa. However, Wood points out that the visitors were probably too dazzled to care about accuracy, or the lack thereof. This display, and others like it, such as Struggle with the Quarry by British ornithologist and bird collector John Hancock, not to be confused with the guy who signed the Declaration of Independence, which featured a falcon attacking a heron that was holding an eel, transformed taxidermy into an art form which inspired taxidermists to develop new ways to make their creations appear as lifelike as possible. Taxidermy appealed to the Victorian public for a number of reasons. Among members of the Victorian middle and upper classes, the home, and in particular the parlor, was seen as a means for families to convey their beliefs about the world, their interest in nature, their love of learning, and even a sense of humor. Big game hunting became popular among wealthy colonialists during the Victorian era, and, as you might imagine, hunters frequently utilized the services of taxidermists to create hunting trophies for their parlors and libraries. According to the taxidermy hobbyist piece, these taxidermists often placed the deceased animals in, quote, particularly savage, snarling postures that emphasize the bravery of the hunter who'd taken them down, end quote. However, taxidermy also appealed to non-hunters. As Hannah Majorano says in The Victorian Naturalist and their interest in taxidermy, quote, decorating with pelts or mounts of species was a way to bring the chaos and worldliness of nature into the domestic sphere by containing it within a civilized art form, end quote. As a result, many Victorians sought to outfit their parlors with bearskin rugs or bird or butterfly collections that could be displayed in glass cases 
or anthropomorphic dioramas in which small animals were posed in ways in which they appeared to be performing human activities. For example, in anthropomorphic taxidermy, how dead rodents became the darlings of the Victorian elite. Rebecca Bergen writes the German taxidermist Hermann Pluquet's dioramas, which displayed scenes showing weasels dueling and sitting around tables with tiny teacups in front of them, quote unquote, dazzled the likes of millions of attendees of the 1851 exhibition including Charles Darwin and Charles Dickens, Lewis Carroll, and even Queen Victoria, who reportedly said they were, quote, really marvelous, end quote, in her diary. And the self-taught Walter Potter created thousands of eccentric scenes using, according to Bergen, quote, unquote, previously deceased animals donated to him by local farmers and hunters, such as, Rabbit's Village School, the Kitten's Tea and Croquet Party, and the Kitten's Wedding. I posted photos of the last two on Twitter recently. Can you blame me? But taxidermy was more than just a means of self-expression to the Victorians. As I've discussed in past episodes, the Victorians had a fascination with death and mourning that many people today find bizarre, which as someone who lives in a country in which mass shootings happen on a regular basis, I find incredibly hypocritical. And I'll go into that a little more at the end of this episode. And in Victorian taxidermy and the peculiar life of Walter Potter, Drew Cruikshank explains that taxidermied animals were an important form of memento mori for many people during the Victorian era. And it was pretty common for families to call upon a taxidermist when their pets passed on. The Victorians believed animals should be useful to humans in both life and death. And according to Cruikshank, even though a deceased pet could no longer fulfill its role as a companion animal, quote, at least the family could use the taxidermized pet to swank up their parlor. In an odd way, Taxidermy was a tender attempt by the family to immortalize their pet, end quote. Despite the popularity of taxidermied animals in private homes following the 1851 exhibit, public taxidermy displays remained popular throughout the Victorian era, as well as during the Edwardian era in the early 20th century. As Wood explains, Regular citizens who didn't have the means to travel the globe could temporarily get a taste of faraway, quote-unquote, exotic lands by attending events like the Colonial and Indian Exhibition held in London in 1886. However, the displays at these events were often arranged in a way that suggested the extent of Britain's power over its colonies with some colonies portrayed as more independent than others. For example, Wood explains that the display for Canada, which had gained its independence in 1867, was diverse, featuring a different animal to represent each different region for Canada, with a polar bear representing the far north on top. On the other hand, the display at the 1886 exhibition and others for India, which is, you might say, a rather large and incredibly diverse country, 
actually part of a subcontinent, was basically a quote-unquote jungle scene in which taxidermied animals who, in life, were rarely in close proximity to each other, were placed side by side. One prominent taxidermist known for his so-called Indian displays, Roland Ward, reportedly used the same taxidermied animals in different exhibitions and, according to Wood, was known to improvise and create hybrids when the specimens he ordered from India were delayed. And when the grasses and palms he ordered from India were delayed, he improvised there too, by surrounding his animals with local vegetation, meaning local British vegetation and so-called rocks that were really made of paper. And then there was the taxidermy hat fad that began the ring the Victorian era and lasted until the 1920s. Although birds were most popularly seen on the heads of fashionable women during this time, which is probably not surprising if you consider that feathers have been a popular touch on hats for centuries, it wasn't uncommon for a lady to show up at an event with a taxidermy kitten or squirrel or even a bat on her head. As David Flint points out in the bizarre and disturbing world of Victorian taxidermy hats, there is a difference between killing a bird specifically for its feathers, which is how a lot of feathers used for hats were obtained, and pinning, say, a taxidermy bird to your fedora, provided you found that bird expired in your garden and didn't kill it specifically to make a fashion statement. And, of course, hunting and wearing animals or animal skins wasn't frowned upon in the Victorian era, like they were in the 1990s, when I remember PETA, which stands for People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, ran very public anti-fur campaigns and called people out for wearing fur coats. And for what it's worth, I would feel a little queasy if I went to a cocktail party and saw some woman wearing a hat with a taxidermied owl sitting on top of it. I'm going to end my discussion of Victorian era taxidermy here, although I might take this topic up again at some point in a future episode, especially since I found Walter Potter and his dioramas intriguing, and there's a lot of good information out there on Potter. But for now, I want to know what you think email me at the Victorian Variety Show at gmail.com or leave me a voice message at anchor.fm slash marissa hyphen d96 slash message. You can also follow me on Twitter at at Victorian Variety One. Admittedly, aside from those kitten pictures I talked about earlier, I haven't been posting there much this past week. What with the outrage I felt over recent events, I've been tweeting a lot more from my personal account, but I normally post stuff that's either relevant to episodes of this show or interesting if you like Victorian history on a semi-regular basis. Anyway, if you'd like to support the show financially, you can buy me a coffee at www.buymeacoffee.com slash marissadf13 or leave a tip if you're listening to this on the Good Pods app. And finally, if you can take a moment to rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Good Pods, Podchaser, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening, I would greatly appreciate it 
because it'll help this show reach more listeners. Thank you so much for listening and for all of your support and feedback and kind messages. I truly appreciate all of you. It wasn't easy for me to do this episode. I've been feeling a range of really strong emotions since the senseless shootings in Buffalo two weeks ago. And since the school shooting in Uvalde, Texas a few days ago, I've been thinking what's the point about a lot of things. I still feel that way, and I think I'm going to feel this way pretty much all the time. But I find comfort in doing this show and studying the Victorian era. Going back to what I was saying earlier about how Victorian mourning customs are seen as strange by many people today, and here, I'm going to be using we in a general sense because what I'm about to say probably doesn't apply to many regular listeners of this show. But I want to emphasize that instead of judging the Victorians for how they mourned, it's time we started learning from them and losing the fake smiles and the positive vibes only memes that a lot of us hide behind because we refuse to accept that there's so much evil in this world. I can only speak for the US here, but I've always had this sense in this country that you're supposed to grieve for a set period of time and then quote unquote move on. And I can't comprehend how anyone ever came to believe that doing that is normal or appropriate especially during a time when a lot of people are experiencing collective grief, like now. As for how the Victorians mourned, I don't necessarily think that you should spend the rest of your life mourning your spouse, as Queen Victoria did, nor do I believe we should feel we need to wear a different type of clothing or a certain color for each stage of the mourning process. But then again, If that's what you or someone you know feels they need to do to cope with grief, who am I to tell someone whether we should or shouldn't do that or judge them just because, you know, a lot of people around us are thinking, be positive. That's all I'm trying to get at. I don't think there should be strict rules around mourning, but I think we need to accept, as the Victorians did, that grief is a part of life. And if we're not feeling okay, like right now, I, I am saying to people that I'm okay with not being okay because I've been really, really upset these last few days. That's okay. I mean, it's okay to feel that way. And it's okay to tell people that. And it's okay if somebody tells you to smile or be positive to however you want to tell them to get out of your face, whether it includes profanity or not, you should have the right to do that because we have a right to feel this way and embrace our grief rather than feel that it's something that we need to be ashamed of. The Victorians weren't ashamed of it. And 
I admire them for that. Even though I criticize them for a lot of other things, I do admire the fact that they were not ashamed to show their grief publicly. Because it is. It's a part of life. So I know I'm rambling here, and I don't think this has all that much to do with taxidermy, but I needed to get that out. And if you're still listening, thank you. Thank you so much. And take care of yourselves. And stay safe. I'll be back in two weeks with a brand new episode, but I'm going to close this out with something else that I found in Brown's taxidermist manual. In a footnote, Brown explains that this is taken from a book called Wanderings in South America by Charles Watertown, Esquire. And I chose it not only because it uses dramatic language, which I like, but also because, how can I say this? I think it demonstrates why taxidermy came to be considered an art form. Whether it's something we personally feel comfortable with or not. Which I think is important to keep in mind when we look at a lot of things that were common during the Victorian era. You must have a complete knowledge of ornithological anatomy. You must pay close attention to the form and attitude of the bird and know exactly the proportion each curve or extension or contraction or expansion of any particular part bears to the rest of the body. In a word, you must possess Promethean boldness and bring down fire and animation, as it were, into your preserved specimen. Repair to the haunts of birds on plains and mountains, forests, swamps, and lakes, and give up your time to examine the economy of the different orders of birds. Then you will place your eagle in attitude commanding, the same as Nelson stood in, in the day of battle on the victory's quarter deck. Your pie will seem crafty and just ready to take flight, as though fearful of being surprised in some mischievous plunder. Your sparrow will retain its wonted pertness by means of placing his tail a little elevated and giving a moderate arch to the neck. Your vulture will show his sluggish habits by having his body nearly parallel to the earth, his wings somewhat drooping, and their extremities under the tail instead of above it, expressive of ignoble indolence. Your dove will be an airless, fearless innocence, looking mildly at you, with its neck not too much stretched, as if uneasy in its situation, or drawn too close into the shoulders, like one wishing to avoid discovery, but in moderate, perpendicular lengths, supporting the head horizontally, which will set off the breast to the best advantage.'